in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, page 853 of your pew Bibles. And I want us to finish, uh, we, we looked at verse 43 uh, last Sunday morning. I want us to look at verses 44 to 48 uh, to pick up. So we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We find ourselves at the end of chapter 5. If you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Matthew the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask the same thing every time we gather, that you, by your Spirit, would open us up, that we believe your word, and that you would transform us. So open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would be redeemed, we would be renewed, and we would be sent out into this world that desperately needs your grace. One key weapon we have is the weapon of gospel love. Help us to walk in it, having swimming in the ocean of your love, so that we may show the world the goodness of Jesus. And may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Jim Elliott was born in 1927, and uh, he, he grew up to uh, wanting to be uh, a missionary. So he went off to school and he eventually met who would become his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, and, and got his education and, and eventually found himself down in Ecuador. And while in Ecuador, he discovered there was an unreached people group, a, tribes, a tribe that, that no one uh, from the West had ever interacted with. They knew enough about this tribe that they were violent and dangerous. And so Jim Elliott and his cohorts, including men like Ed McCauley, Roger Uterin, Peter Fleming, and Nate Saint, all planned on how to reach this entire tribe of people with the gospel of Jesus. And so they learned a little bit of their language and, and really began to want to build some trust with them. So they got an airplane, they flew over the tribe, and, and they would lower gifts. And they would keep giving these gifts after gift after gift until eventually they landed the plane and stood on the outskirts of the tribe, welcoming some of them out who were interested and in see what was going. And there again, they offered uh, gifts and other goodies to keep building this trust. And so they would return time after time after time time again, and everything seemed to be going as planned. Until one day, due to certain conflict within the tribe, when the missionaries, Jim Elliot and the, and, his, and, and the others, landed, uh, a group of 10 warriors from the tribe grabbed their spears, ran out to the beach where the plane had landed, and killed all five of the missionaries. Days later, their bodies were found by rescuers. Not one of them had survived. Jim Elliott's wife was a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliott. You maybe have read some of her books or maybe heard of the name. 
she, she, she was sort of a ringleader of, of this because of Jim Elliott's own influence. But, but their story went global. Life magazine, in fact, published a 10-page article on the life of Jim Elliott and his friends and, and what happened to them as martyrs for the faith. Now, that is what everybody saw. They saw a tragic story of people who love their God to the point that they would go to the ends of the world to tell others about how great this God was. What they didn't announce, what you didn't see in the newspapers and the magazines, was what would happen in the years to follow. Elizabeth Elliot and others would return to Ecuador. And over a period of years, they would return to that tribe. They would move in with the tribe. And they would befriend the tribe, including those who killed their husbands and fathers. We are called to love. Hate is the easiest thing you could ever do in this lifetime. No one will judge you for it. No one will condemn you for it. No one will correct you for it. In fact, they will say you are right to hate and to despise those people who may have wronged you. But love, as difficult as it might be, it is always the harder choice. But in the end, Gospel love has the power to change lives and to change the world. Last week, you may recall, we looked at verse 43. We talked about false love. That is to say that, that there are people that God wants me to love and there are, there are people that God allows me to hate. And if you were a, a Jewish a man or woman in the first century when Jesus is, is saying this, sharing this Sermon on the Mount, uh, you had a long list of people to hate. Uh, oppressive Roman uh, empire with their soldiers with Jewish blood in their hands and politicians who had given the order. You, you had Samaritans who were half-breeds who, who, who let your people down. You, you had sinners who were the cause of all your suffering. You had plenty of people in your life that you told yourself and the elites told you you were allowed to hate. So you create semantics and you come out with ways to redefine neighbor as to exclude those you despise. But starting in verse 44, Jesus shows us what real true love looks like. Jesus suggests here in verse 44 that citizens of God's kingdom live by a different ethic. Instead of choosing hate, God's people choose love. And we, we must not do with the word love what we did with the word neighbor and that we played semantics. Or, nor should we do the same thing with the word enemy. That is to say that, that, that maybe we can redefine enemy. Maybe enemy is just people I kind of don't like but can put up with. You know, half your coworkers. You wouldn't spend the evening with them. You wouldn't take them with you on vacation. You're not going to tell them, in fact, where you're going on vacation. You're not going to share with them your house key or even the address of your house. You're not going to do any of that. You don't like them, but you can still love them. But in case we're tempted with that sort of semantics, Jesus tells us exactly what he means by enemies. Love your enemies and pray even for those who want you dead. Love the person who seeks your destruction. Love the person who wish you never existed. Love the person who enjoys watching you suffer. Love the person who wishes you to be erased and no more. Love them. 
Now, it is one thing to know what to do. It is a completely another matter to know practically how to do it. How do we then love our enemies? These people that is so easy to hate. After all, if they hate me, there is... Why wouldn't I want to respond with hatred towards them? Jesus tells us two things on how to love our enemies. The first thing he tells us is we need to pray for our enemies. Pray for your enemies. Without a doubt, we find it easy to pray for our friends, our family, our church members, co-workers, and others. But when was the last time you prayed for someone you didn't like and didn't like you? Someone you were in conflict with, someone you wish that if, if they didn't work with me anymore, it'd be a better environment. It's someone you wish that if they didn't show up to Christmas dinner, we'd have a nice Christmas dinner. Someone you wish that, that if they just moved to the other end of the neighborhood, someone who just wasn't in my life anymore. That, when was the last time we prayed for someone like that? But why should we pray for someone like that? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, and I reworded these from, from your bulletin, so forgive me. Prayer marvels at grace. Prayer marvels at grace. When we demonize others, we treat them as less than human. And often this will show up in subtle ways, sometimes in obvious ways, but in subtle ways. Prayer is one of those. When you say, my wife I'm willing to pray for, but my enemy I will not, you just confessed that they are worthy of God's favor, your wife, but your enemy is not. That flies in the face of grace. Marvel at grace. The idea that someone like myself, of course, because we usually just pray for ourselves, is more worthy of grace than other people flies in the face of the gospel. Even more, refusing to pray for someone who has sinned against you and, and therefore you refuse to forgive them is to say that their sin against me is greater than my sin against my maker. Let me just encourage you this morning, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what anyone does in your life, no one ever has, nor will they ever sin against you worse than you have sinned against your Redeemer. In fact, I know this because your salvation required a lot of blood to satisfy no one has ever sinned against you, nor will they ever sin against you. And so we play this game of comparison. Sure, I'm not a good person, but they're better than me. Therefore, of course God saved me. Of course God loves me. But when we pray, we are confronted with the reality. We are, we are entering into the presence of God solely by the blood of Jesus, and we deserve it no more than they. By refusing to pray for enemies... We also elevate ourselves as worthy of grace when our enemies do not deserve it. Learn, therefore, to pray less, God destroy them, and learn to pray more, God help me to love them. So we must marvel at grace. Secondly, prayer forces us to seek the well-being of others. I mean, think about it. Usually whenever we have time of corporate prayer, what, what precedes that? Prayer request. Aunt Flossie has an ingrown toenail, and, it, and she's just pestering about it. Okay, we're going to put Aunt Flossie right there on the prayer list, that ingrown toenail. We pray for marriages. We pray for homes. We pray for the health of people. We pray for the spiritual needs of people. We pray for people traveling to and traveling back. We pray regarding weather. We pray regarding buildings. We pray re regarding homes. We pray regarding workspaces. We pray regarding the economy. We pray regarding military. We pray regarding the country. We pray regarding the city. We pray for everything. And in all of that, what do we want? Their well-being. If you would learn to pray for the well-being of your enemies, 
you will discover that God can use you to bring about the well-being of your enemies. Pray for their well-being. Thirdly, let us, uh, what prayer does is it is a meditation that blesses. Among the spiritual blessings in the Bible, read your Bible, prayer, all that sort of stuff. There are two we Baptists do not like. We just don't do them because we don't like them. Now, we believe the Bible doesn't mean we're going to obey it all, right? Uh, You didn't say that in church. Say that outside the church steps. There are two of them we do not like. One, fasting for obvious reasons. Right? We Americans, we don't fast, okay? We, we move fast to the dinner table, but that's it, all right? We do not fast. We don't believe in it. I mean, we believe in it. We just ain't going to practice it. That's for the more spiritual people. The other one that we don't do is meditation. Can, can, can I tell you why? One of the reasons why? One's laziness, but the, one of them is, is because when we hear the word meditation, we think of Eastern mysticism, In Eastern religion, meditation is the art of emptying emptying the self. In Christianity, it's about filling the self with the truth of God and his word. Meditating is clearly taught in Scripture. It's clearly taught in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we are to meditate on the things of God. But can I give you a little secret here about meditation? You're already doing it. You're already doing it. I'm willing to bet there are a few people here today You couldn't sleep last night. Can I guess why? You can't turn your thoughts off. I'm an insomniac. I I am in front of that line. What are you thinking about? That conversation you had, you just can't get out of your head. That relationship you used to have, whatever happened to that? What would they really mean when they said those words to me? Why am I so angry? Why can't they understand why I'm so angry? I mean, you just keep replaying all this in your head. What are you doing there? You're meditating. You see, anxiety is the art of meditating on things you cannot control. Gratitude is the art of meditating on things you cannot control. But what's the difference? Anxiety stirs bitterness, anger, malice, wrath, entitlements, because you think, I can't control it. Why can't I control it? Why can't I change the situation? Gratitude comes and says, you know what? I don't have to control it. I don't need to control it. I'm grateful for the God who is sovereign over all things. And out of that gratitude comes encouragement, peace, goodness, love, and blessing. Prayer fits this latter category. When we pour all of our pains, all of our sorrows, all of our hurts, and all of our anger onto God, we discover the beauty of of submitting and resting in God's sovereign power. This stirs gratitude. Prayer, then, is a type of meditation that we are benefited from. We, We are blessed by God's grace in order to become a blessing for others. I don't need to choose anger. I don't need to choose entitlements. I don't need to choose hate. I can choose love. For as I am grateful for God's grace in my life, I can learn to be grateful for their presence in mine as well. In short, it is hard to hate people you pray for. But Jesus tells us not just to pray for our enemies. He also tells us to love them with gospel love, to love them with gospel love. Now, we said last week, it's easy for us to redefine neighbor. 
Right, so, so neighbor means these people. It doesn't need to mean these people. So I can hate these people while I claim to love these people. And Jesus didn't let us get away with that. Well, we can do the same thing with the word love. We can just redefine love. And given our confusion as a culture with the word like love, we Christians might be tempted to water down, uh, water down the, the word love to fit our purposes. Now, he isn't asking us to like our enemies or to tolerate them or to be kind to them or to refuse to retaliate against them. Rather, he is telling us to love them, to genuinely love them. Now, what does that look like? How do we know that we are loving them? couple things that Jesus tells us here. In verse 45, he tells us that, uh, well, I'm going to give them all four to you here. God loves, there it is in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Now, we all agree that God loves. We all agree that God's, God loves. We also agree that God's love is both universal and without discrimination. We all agree on that. God loves everyone, including his enemies. And the way we know that, practically speaking, is the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous, and it is chilly outside for the just and the unjust. Across the board, God, God treats us with this type of of equality. He loves us equally. Now, the point is that God does not discriminate his blessings. If anybody has a right to withhold love, surely it is God. Yet he equally blesses all, including us, who don't always love him the way we ought to. Somehow, God still shows his love to those who ignore him. Somehow, God still shows his love to those who reject him. Why? Because a prejudiced love is not divine love. If you ever think, if you're thinking in your mind, yeah, I would, I want to love them, but you just contradicted divine love. They hurt my feelings. They won't answer my text. They went, went behind my back to the boss. They, 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 they said those things. They came after my family, and they don't like my dog. Whatever it is, whatever falls but, we, we, we need to realize that is, we are no longer in the category of divine love. Worldly love, maybe. That's not our goal. Divine love loves without a discrimination or prejudice. It is universal. Uh, so if we refuse to love our enemies, the truth is we are no better than our enemies because they refuse to love us, disregarding anything we might say about God. And given that God is our father and we are his children, we ought to seek to be more like him. Let us love the way God does, universally and without discrimination. Notice, secondly, Jesus wants us to see that not only is love divine uh, and, and that God loves, he, he also wants to see that love is transcendent, verse 46 to 47. Look at it there again. If you love those who love you, and who doesn't, what reward do you have? Not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The temptation remains for us to limit love by mere acceptance and ease. It is easy for me to love my mother and father because they love me. It's easy for me to show them love because they show me their love. It's easy for me to love my wife 
because she shows me love. Now, I want you to notice the pattern here. We define love as reciprocity. It took me a long time to learn to pronounce that word. Reciprocity. I'm going to say it again. Reciprocity. The same many of you all from the South can say that. Reciprocity. That's the way we define love. But you'll notice what lies at the center of a love that is reciprocity. What is lies at the center? Me. Me. You see, I will show you love when you show me love. I will show you kindness when you show me kindness. I'll be gentle and tolerant and listen to you when you are those things to me. Hey, married couples, you guilty of this? You bet your sweet bippy, the theologians say. How many times, almost every married couple, it'll come in. She will complain about lack of affection. He will complain about lack of intimacy. And why have they got this situation? It's because when she feels a lack of, of affection, she punishes with a lack of intimacy. When he feels a lack of intimacy, he punishes with a lack of affection. What did you just find there? Love is defined by acceptance, ease, and reciprocity. That's worldly love. It's worldly love. That's the easy love. It's not divine love. Gospel love crosses boundaries and reconciles broken relationships. Think about it. Infatuation will not save your marriage. Love will. Tolerance will not sustain your family. Love will. I can prove it to you. That crazy uncle that comes up every Thanksgiving. You will tolerate him on Thanksgiving. But you will not let him move in with you. Tolerance cannot sustain a family. Race, ethnicity, or a common story will not unite a nation. Only love will. Unless love transcends man-made boundaries and borders, it is not love. Reciprocity is not gospel love. It's worldly love. This is why Jesus draws our attention to tax collectors on the one hand, the Gentiles on the other. He says that if you only love people who are, are of your ilk, who are of your tribe, who are of your family, or people who, who give you something before you can give to them, you're no different than the lowest of the low in Jewish mind, the people you hate, the Gentiles on the one hand, the tax collectors on the other. You're no different than them because the love by which you walk in is no different than the love that they have. What is setting us apart? Absolutely nothing. Failure to love your neighbor regardless of their attitude towards you is a fundamental rejection of gospel love. You, therefore, are no different in your hate than the one who may hate you. I want to notice here real quickly. Well, I've got it up here. I keep forgetting that. Uh, the, the, the third one, we need to go back to verse 10. Go back to verse 10 here in chapter 5. This is the Beatitudes. Now, the thing about the Beatitudes, you remember that the word blessed has, has two primary meanings, right? One regards faith, the other regards wisdom and virtue. By faith, I am blessed. By wisdom and virtue, I am blessed to be a blessing, okay? So, so you, can, you can be blessed of God by definition, by identity, but through fullest acts, you're not a blessing to other people. We want both. So notice here, each of these are blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. That's identity, but I want you to notice here, he says in verse 10, blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Notice there that your circumstances of persecution do not rob you of God's blessing. For they, 
uh, for theirs rather, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. I want you to see this, that, that when we love our enemies... When we love our enemies, nothing they can do to us robs us of our identity in Christ as a blessed people, nor will it rob us from being a blessing to those who may hate us. In fact, Jesus connects these two. There in verse 11, blessed are those who persecute you, right? Well, you can come right back down to verse 44, love your enemies and, and, and pray for those who persecute you. It's the same word, same language. Jesus says you go all the way back up to the Beatitudes. That has to do with your identity and the way you live. You come all the way into chapter five. What is he saying? I'm going to put it all together. You are going to love your enemies. You're going to walk in love and we're going to go to the extreme, even those who want you dead. And when you do that, you will discover the blessing of God. You see, gospel love is not only uh, to be blessed, it is to be a blessing to others. If you choose love here today, you are not choosing for yourself anxiety, anger, resentment, bitterness, malice, or discontentment. You are choosing blessing. Have you ever in your life met anyone that is easily angered who is happy? No. Have you ever met anyone in your life that is prone to grudges who seem happy? No. Have you ever met anyone easily triggered by the smallest thing ever be happy? No. Because they refuse to see how gospel love blesses. It truly blesses. Likewise, if you choose love, gospel love, you are blessing those around you. Love heals, it resolves problems, it perseveres, it comforts, it sacrifices, it serves, it blesses. One last thing, love conquers. Maybe we'll get out late. It's warm in here. You don't want to leave anyways. Love conquers. Notice verse 48 again, because this, this could be a scary verse, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm willing to bet for many of you, you're, you grew up in a legalistic family, church, society, whatever, and a verse like that scares you to death as it should. Unless you are perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Remember that when Jesus preached this, he, he, has, he has a certain audience in mind, and they're not 21st century Americans who are addicted to social media. No, no, no. It's, it's a first century Jewish concept, and one of the main aims of his audience are the Pharisees who believe their strict adherence to the law made them righteous, perfect even. Now, as we've seen uh, this year and then last year when we started Sermon on the Mount, one of the, one of the secrets of their perfection was to change the rules. You ever go to recess when you're a kid and play basketball, baseball, or chase, or, or catch, or whatever it is with, with that kid who, whenever he loses, he changes the rules? You ever meet that kid? You just want to boink him in the eyes, right? I mean, he's, it's an annoying kid, right? And then they become adults, right? And that's, that's a separate, separate matter. But, but, but. Why do they change the rules? Because they know they don't measure up to the actual game. And so if they change the rules in their favor, they look better. This is what the Pharisees are doing. Yeah, the Bible says love, love your enemies or love your neighbor. Yeah, but it didn't say love your enemies. We can redefine the term. We can play these semantics all day long. And in so doing, they view themselves as perfect and righteous. 
Much of the Sermon on the Mount is confronting their hypocrisy. Starting in chapter 6, he's really going to do that with charity, prayer, and, and others. But what Jesus is showing is that in their failure to love their enemies, they, therefore, were outside of God's favor. God's, and Jesus is saying, look, this was the standard. God didn't change that standard. You did. And you thought in changing the standard, you could change God's law. And that's not how this works. Here's the standard. Let me show you what the standard looks like. It means not retaliating against someone who's angry at you. It means loving your enemy, even if they want you dead. That's the standard. And if you don't measure to that standard, you are no different than anyone else who breaks that standard. You see what Jesus has just done? He said, look, you're looking out there and you're saying God honors your hatred. The tax collectors, the Gentiles, the Samaritan, the Roman soldier, the oppressor, the outsider, the exile. You think God has, has honored that. What you don't realize is, is that just as you would condemn their hatred of you, God is condemning your hatred of them. And you are on equal playing ground as sinners. And unless you are perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus does here is he indicts all of us on equal ground. It isn't that some of us have sinned more than others. It's that we have sinned the same way. Hatred is a violation of the kingdom of God. And we can't get in the kingdom of God by hatred. So what do we do? What do we do? We'll just look at the text. Jesus tells us how we enter the kingdom of God. You love your enemies and you pray for them. The irony of the text to prove that Jesus' point was right is that the Pharisees didn't just hate for racial reasons, the Samaritans, didn't just hate for political reasons, the Romans. They hated, period. Because they would add someone else to that growing list of people that they think God would honor them to hate. He was a son of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. In a few short years, rooted in hatred and envy and malice, they will nail him to a cross. And how did he respond? Well, when Peter hated the, hated the Romans, Jesus healed of the man who would arrest him, Malchus. When trialed, he, he didn't lash out in accusation and hatred. He simply sat and listened. And when crucified, his people wagged their fingers and spit at him and crowned him with the full crown of thorns. And they mocked him as a false messiah, a fake king, a nobody, someone who would die that of a lowly slave. What did Jesus do? He forgave them. Jesus shows us here the beauty and the power of love. Love. The New Testament picks up on this imagery. And I've shared this before, that, that, that in the New Testament, if you did a word study of the word love, you'll find that it's almost always either in the past tense loved or it is in the present tense with a past modifier. I'll give you three examples. I could give you dozens more for the sake of time. You're already getting out late. I won't torture you anymore than I have to. Here they are, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still righteous, he, he reciprocated that love. That's not what it says. While we hated him, while we warred against him, while we despised him, while we crucified him, he loved us. 
Walk in love. Oh, can we just redefine love to fit uh, what we're already doing to look more righteous? What does he mean by love here in Ephesians 5? Just as Christ loved you. And how did Christ love us? Not that Christ used to love us, but God has demonstrated his love for us. In that, Paul says, he gave himself up for us as as an acceptable sacrifice. You can't separate love from sacrifice. Therefore, love those who hate you and persecute you. 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this. He laid his life down for us. We, John goes on to say, though it's cut off, ought to lay our lives down for each other. You have heard it said, love your neighbor. But I tell you, love your enemies. I want you to imagine a scenario where we, we had someone come in with a, with a piano and, and they were going to play Amazing Grace. And let's imagine with this, with this piano, I played Amazing Grace. I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't play the piano. I played, the, I played you know, semantics. I played uh, the bass guitar in high school because I wanted to be in a punk rock band. And you see where that got me, right? We mostly played TFK and Reliant K songs. And, and, and uh, we did two shows, two songs, because they were for a talent show in high school. And that's it. That's it. My, uh, we did it long enough for my wife, my then girlfriend, to, wear, to buy a shirt that said, I'm with the band. And that was it. That's as cool as we ever got, okay? Um, so I can't play the piano. And if I sat down here and I said, for your, for, 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 for your uh, pleasure, I'm going to play the classic hymn, Amazing Grace. And I just went at it and gave it my very all. If you don't know Amazing Grace, you, you're probably going to think, you know what? It's not a very good song. It's not a very good song at all. It's a shame. He should have picked a better song. But then after I get done, someone who can play the piano, a professional, someone gifted in the area of piano playing, if they came in and sat down at the same piano and played the same exact song, what would you say? That's a beautiful song. What was the difference? Knowing how it's supposed to be played. One of the criticisms I hear of Christianity all the time is a historical one. Remember, we live in a postmodern culture with the true, the good, and the beautiful. We, we highlight the good at the cost often of the true. And so look back in Christian history, and we have to own a lot of it. There's a lot of hatred in our past, a lot of oppression in our past, a lot of violence in our past, and, and, and a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of just terrible things in, that, that has been done in the name of Jesus Christ. And the temptation is for us to say, see, look at that. It's the wrong song. But then you have to realize that there's always been hatred. There's always been oppression. There's always been racism. There's always been these things. It's not a Christian idea. That's a human problem. But when Christianity is played right, you'll see that it is played to the tune of loving your enemies. No one else will tell you to do that. Nor will any other preacher, unless, of course, the gospel is blood-soaked. Brothers and sisters, if you have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ covers you and forgiven you of all of your sins. If your hope in this world is Jesus Christ risen from the dead, let us, therefore, as imperfect as we might be, as difficult as it is, let us leave here. To not just love our neighbor, 
or to love other Christians. Let us, therefore, in this increasingly hostile world, love our enemies. Let us respond in faith in this time of invitation. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask you to be so kind as to help us to